papers are biased, the Idaho Press Club are biased, all media, newspaper, radio. To be completely blunt here, Brian, and there are plans to expand indoctrination. That's right. Well, Idahoans are also concerned. Horror shot. That line would be moving a little bit farther west. I'm like crying. Nobody wants to Dark see. Dark money is influencing policy in our state. Well, that's not how this works. Well, hello there and welcome to Nowhere to Hide. I'm Brian Hyde and today we're going to talk about how the press in Idaho is spinning out of control. Not just in Idaho, it's happening in a lot of places, but but especially here we're seeing some fantastic examples. And actually a great place to start would be with the NPR, which is absolutely waxing indignant that Twitter has uh, noted that they are state-affiliated media. And then... <laughs> NPR is just, I should say, National Proletariat Radio is really upset about this. This is something they posted on Twitter. NPR produces consequential, independent journalism every day in service to the public. Here's where you can find and read our work. They tell you where to go. Uh, basically, they're saying we are so upset we're going to pull the plug on Twitter and we are going to, uh, you know, take our ball and go home. And they're, they're apparently loudly insisting they are neither national nor are they public. And I think it's well, it's long overdue. It's time somebody called out NPR for being the state-affiliated media that it is, much like Russia Today is, much like the BBC is, which, by the way, the BBC also protests, hey, we're, we're, not, uh, we're not government-funded. We're just funded with money that's taken from the public through a, a, a licensing fee that's collected by the government. But, you know, the denials just make it all the sweeter. And the crazy thing about it is, they don't like being called on the fact that they are compromised and beholden to their funding source, which happens to be the people who are in power. Now, of course, so we leave it to our friend Heath Drusen, who is a kind of a professional name caller of sorts, identifying radicals and such, to say, wow, Elon Musk spent $44 billion to turn Twitter into Parler with the more Nazis, less relevance model. The problem is Parler already exists and no one uses it. People come to Twitter for news. If Twitter chases the news away, then what? By the way, look at look at what uh, Leila Fidel is saying. NPR is saying goodbye to Twitter. So am I. Our CEO writes the platform is taking actions that undermine our credibility by falsely implying we are not editorially independent. Okay. Uh, find us anywhere. Find me on Instagram, etc. cetera. Uh, they, they just can't believe that people are finding trouble with their credibility. How, how could we do that? How could we be so Philistine? How could we be so so uninitiated as to, as to not recognize the great contribution that they're making to, to telling us what to think? Oh, wait, maybe that's that's part of the problem. And let me share some examples with you as to, to the different forms that this takes. You know, it's it's not a matter of of, oh, yeah, you know, they're they're only regurgitating press releases, although there are some media that, that are very happy to do this. For instance, uh, just a few days ago, when some apparently very sensitive uh, material, which which certainly hasn't been verified as legit, but uh, but it has to do with, uh, you know, American military intelligence documents. And, and, and certainly it hasn't been verified, but uh, that has no business being out there in the public, even though it hasn't been verified and certainly doesn't have any truth to it. They, they sure act like it does. And so... Um, you know, all these different media outlets, including Fox News, by the way, so so don't think that they're necessarily, you know, a counterweight to all of this, have agreed, yes, yes, we, we shouldn't do this. I'm sorry, but the press's job is to actually be more on the side of truth than it is on government. That doesn't seem to be the case right now. And, and when it comes to Idaho politics, well, let's just say it gets a little bit complicated. I thought this was a, a, a marvelous and very revealing treat. Polly Math says, I hate, hate, hate the state of journalism. I thought it was crazy that Idaho made it illegal to travel to another state to get an abortion, only to look it up and discover 
they made it illegal for an adult to take a minor across the border for an abortion without parental consent. Oh, now that you mention it, that that is a bit of a difference. Those are two extremely different scenarios, and anyone who headlines Idaho bans interstate travel for abortion is simply lying. I don't care if they put the truth in the article. They know how headlines work, and most people don't read beyond the headlines. Pauli Matt says to say nothing. This is this is absolutely is this absolutely grotesque propagandistic falsehood from uh, Patty Murray. She has to lie about the law in order to make herself look reasonable. Patty Murray said last night the governor of Idaho signed into law a bill preventing young women in Idaho from exercising their constitutional right to travel to get the legal abortion care they need. As if denying women the ability to get the abortion care they need in their own state were not awful enough. Idaho has now gone further, holding young women captive in their own state and threatening anyone who might help them get the care they need with time in prison. This law is an appalling attack on the rights of Idaho women and our most basic rights as Americans to travel freely within our country. Now, you notice there's some buzzwords, care, abortion care. It's just care, care, care. Really? Well, um, let's uh, actually, let me back up here for a second. We'll get to Kelsey Mosley Morris in just a second. The young women... I'm, I'm going to put that in scare quotes. The young women are actually minors. So we're, we're euphemistically saying these young, these, these minors, these young women are being denied the chance to get the abortion care. It's, it, it's taking a minor across state lines without parental permission to get an abortion. That's what it is. Spin, spin, spin. But uh, hey. You know, it's, it's supposed to sound like, oh my gosh, this is right out of a bridesmaid's tale. And, and the crazy thing about it is, not only is this considered the highest form of, of expression, you know, that well, if, you're, if your daughter, your young daughter, your minor daughter can't, can't uh, freely get an abortion here in the state of Idaho without any complications, why, you know, you are somehow denying the, the, the very essence of why she is alive. Now, I, I don't know of anybody who has, has been uh, threatened with anything like this, but, but notice Kelsey Mosley Morris, who was at the Idaho Capitol Sun, and now she's, I believe, the uh, state news desk, uh, Reproductive Rights. There's another good euphemism. The, uh, she's the pro-abortion uh, uh, at-large reporter. She actually has to drum up the news. If, if she can't find it, well, then she'll put this out here. I'm looking for tips on reproductive care. There's that word again. Care stories that aren't getting a lot of attention. I'm looking for personal stories of people affected by new reproductive laws. I have a budget to travel. Tell me what you want to see. Somebody, please give me a story that will support my side of the narrative and, and, and help me support the euphemistic use of that word care when I'm really talking about abortion. Who's, you know, who, who will help me? Somebody give me something. It's, I mean, I assume she's a competent uh, reporter. You'd think she would be able to find that fairly easily, but no. No, she's, she's got to go trolling. Got to troll those thoughts and see what uh, what's out there. Somebody somebody feed me a story that, that will help support my political side. That's that's just pathetic. But, you know, again, if you just read the headlines, if you don't do any looking into the story yourself, it's pretty easy to see how people can become misled. Speaking of misled, you've probably noticed that a lot of people have found their way to Idaho here in recent years, particularly in the last couple of years. You know, during the COVID lockdowns, and I'll confess, I'm one of those people who, formerly a resident of Idaho, found my way back here in the last couple of years. One of the reasons why I was very eager to get back to the gem state is because when I would come here to visit family, one of the things that I would notice is um, life was, was pretty normal. 
You know, I, at the time I was living along the Wasatch Front in, in Utah and, and masking was ubiquitous and the, the, the distancing policies and people were paranoid. There was so much fear in people's eyes. I would come to visit family in Idaho. We'd stop at a diner somewhere and, and, and nobody's wearing a mask. There's no fear. People are actually just living their lives and being normal. It was such a refreshing break. And I can only assume that there are other people who caught on to this as well. And, and I'm not saying COVID was the be-all, end-all. But if look, if, if your day-to-day life in a, in a big city involves, uh, you know, having to step over people's excrement or to, to walk away from, you know, confrontations that are developing because people are robbing a store or just walking out of stores with merchandise in their hands or shooting each other in broad daylight or you've got uh, Black Lives Matters or Antifa riots going on and shutting down traffic, I can kind of understand why somebody wouldn't really want to embrace that as, hey, this is really great. This is kind of an improvement on the way things were before. It's clearly not. And maybe they just couldn't help but notice you don't see a lot of that kind of activity taking place here in Idaho. I should probably knock on wood when I say that, but um, it's it's really nice to have a break. But I, I remain convinced that one of the reasons why Idaho is so attractive to people from so many different places that are not here is because it appears to be in many ways, an island of freedom in an otherwise uh, rapidly um, becoming unfree world. I can't blame them for wanting to be here. There, there are very few places left where you actually have a, a pretty good measure of freedom. And this is not to say life is perfect. We still have our problems, too. We still have a lot of big government advocates. But I want you to see the, the treatment. This is the contempt with which uh, the, the Idaho statesman, and in particular Bob Kuster, who's one of their editorial writers, um, has towards those people who would come here seeking freedom because it couldn't possibly be freedom that's motivating their their pilgrimage away from those uh, blue state uh, utopias and and want to come to to our dear gem state. Idaho must push back against redoubt and extremism. If you're not familiar with the word redoubt, we'll talk about that more in just a few moments. Custer says, it's not often I read a book about our challenging times and find Idaho prominently featured, but that's how things turned out. When I read Preparing for War, the Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. Oh, you you can see where this is headed, right? This is by Bradley Onishi. The author, a former white Christian nationalist. By the way, would somebody explain exactly what that means? Okay, I get his skin color is white. Was he was he a former Christian? Was he a former nationalist? And and what exactly does that mean? Is this is this the marriage of the flag and the cross, or is it something more sinister? It's it's kind of like we're left to draw our own conclusions here, but it must be some form of extremism. With with nine years in the evangelical movement, including six years in the ministry, left the church, earned a doctorate in religious studies, and assumed a teaching position at the University of San Francisco. Kustra says he wrote Prepping for War after January 6, 2021, when he realized that the terrorist assault on the Capitol which, by the way, I don't know if you've heard, uh, we now learned that of the Proud Boys who were being prosecuted for this, no less than eight out of the 13 that were being prosecuted were, in fact, either federal sources, federal informants, or um, federal agents themselves. Huh, isn't that something? It's almost like there was a provocateur role that was being played here. But but no, let's let's continue with, it, with his, uh, his narrative. It was the result of white Christian nationalist rhetoric over the years. I wonder how he'll draw the lines connecting that. The book explains how the rise of the new religious right gave birth to white Christian nationalism. This is the new liberal cuss word, the new progressive cuss word here, and how it might play out in the future in even more dangerous and destructive ways. Uh, Just remind me, how many people did those white Christian nationalists on January 6th kill? 
I can tell you the answer. The answer is none. They killed absolutely none. I know the press repeated ad nauseum, you know, this was a deadly day for law enforcement. Nope. No law enforcement officer died as a result of, of their actions. The only person who died that day was at the hands of a Capitol Police officer, and her name was Ashley Babbitt. Anyway, back to the editorial. Onishi now describes his former church affiliation as a movement thoroughly entrenched in American nationalism, white supremacy, patriarchy, and xenophobia. Boy, those are big words, but can he back them up? Onishi draws an important distinction between white evangelism and white Christian nationalism, which he claims far exceeds the boundaries of white evangelicalism. White Christian nationalism marries cross and flag and creates the myth of America founded as a Christian nation. It also reflects on what it sees as America's covenant with God in recognizing its past glory when straight white Christians had exclusive control of politics and culture. Okay, a couple things here that, that we need to dissect. The myth that America was founded as a Christian nation. Look, it was not founded as a theology, or a theocracy, rather. It was never intended to be a theocracy. However, if you read the writings of the founders, you will find that not only were they varied in their beliefs, but there was a very strong thread of Christianity that informed their thinking. And some of them were deists and some of them were non-believers, but, but the bottom line is Christianity, the Judeo-Christian ethic, if you will, absolutely had an influence on how they viewed themselves, how they viewed the world, and, and where they felt that their allegiance was best spent. Look at the Declaration of Independence if you want to see where they were, were stating the morality for which they were choosing to separate themselves from England for violating their God-given rights. They were stating it for a candid world to see. They were, were appealing to the God of the universe. Or I'm sorry, the supreme judge of the universe is actually how they put it. But they also appealed to the laws of nature and nature's God as to why it was right and proper for them to do so. And, and this does not mean that it was a religious war, but clearly there was a dynamic of faith that drove their thinking. And it was that, that faith that informed their sense of morality that said, this is not right to continue on being, you know, represented by, by a king who, who is not acting in our best interests. And of course, when they did go to separate themselves, the king violently tried to keep them in the fold. They resisted with violence and they won their freedom. And, and every step of the way, they talked about divine providence being a part of their, uh, their success in overcoming the most uh, powerful military machine on the earth at that time, which was Great Britain. Now, again, this was not founded as a theocracy, but to pretend that, well, you know, to say that it was founded as a Christian nation, Christianity definitely informed the founders' thinking and, and the people of the country. Read Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America, and you will see that uh, this was something that was very, very common, that, that people regularly appealed to religious thought. And, and it's not because they were extremists. I know in today's parlance, well, anything that's religious has to be extremist. But no, if you think about it, especially as the people moved west, oftentimes it was with limited space. They didn't have room for whole libraries of books, at least not, not the average person. So if they had to choose very carefully, what can we bring with us? A Bible was very often one of the, the works of literature they would bring with them because it was something they could return to over and over again as a classic and learn from it and teach from it and, and find nourishment, both, in, both intellectual as well as, as spiritual. Shakespeare, by the way, in his, his uh, folio was, was another one of the works that they would use when they were limited on space. But uh, the idea here, oh, it's just, it's just a myth. 
And, and, and the idea that when straight white Christians had exclusive control of America's politics and culture, what they're talking about is a time when normalcy was actually the norm and deviancy was not. Now, you know, I don't know what the percentage is of people who, who are not straight white Christians, but but there's so much emphasis right now on the idea that, uh, well, it's all about, uh, you know, the politics of whether you're straight or whether you're LGBTQ+, blah, blah, blah. That's an artificial construct. The normal, the, the default setting for the vast majority of people is heterosexual normalcy. And as hard as we see them trying to, to indoctrinate kids into, uh, you know, embracing these different gender identities and, and different aspects of sexuality, it kind of makes you wonder if, if maybe, why is that found to be such a threat? Is it because there's greater stability there than, than you'll find in other situations? I don't know. But anyway, moving on, he says, finally, such loyalty and obedience to a God whose nation has failed him. Oh, boy. Creates an apocalyptic vision for white nationalists or white Christian nationalists to act out of a crisis narrative that demands the kind of immediate action we witnessed on January 6th. Now, again, if you read the writings of the founders, and I can recommend a fantastic book by Colonel John Eidsmo called the uh, called Christianity and the Constitution. Christianity was not just some background fringe idea that was, you know, there somewhere in the background, but nobody really believed it. It very deeply informed the thinking and the motivation and the morality of that founding generation. So they they felt that there was not just a, not just a, an opportunity for them to to be true to God in the way that they lived their lives, but they they established their government with different checks and balances to deal with the the tendency of human nature to take a little bit of authority and try to grow it into a lot of authority. Something that we're learning about in some detail today. He says Brad Onishi. This is a Bob Kustra writing. Brad Onishi had a front row seat in the growth of the evangelical movement in Orange County, California, where he was raised. He witnessed the Sunbelt migration as white Southerners headed west to recreate their own version of white Christianity. A potpourri of Christian nationalist mythology, libertarian economics, and cowboy individualism. You can just hear the sneer in his, his writing here. Voila! Orange County becomes the epicenter of white Christian nationalism. But its vision was overridden by a California that won the Oscar for the most liberal state in the Union, far out numbering the white conservatives in Orange County. It's really not so much a matter of conservative versus progressive. It's a matter of people who understand there are limits, there is right, there is wrong, and, and are willing to abide by those limits and hold government to those proper limits. Kustra says, and here's the narrative part of the narrative where Idaho appears stage right. An entire chapter is devoted to an influx of conservative Californians and white Christian nationalists whoever that is, to Idaho and neighboring states. Onishi credits James Wesley Rawls, a former military intelligence officer, with, imply, with applying the term American Redoubt to the intermountain states of Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, and parts of eastern Washington. He says the American Redoubt is the intermountain region where white Christian nationalists seek to take over local governments, really, and to cultivate Christian nationalist churches, all toward the goal of setting up a theocratic society. You know, nobody has clued me in on this, but I'm, I'm definitely one who believes that uh, you'll find more freedom in Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, and in parts of eastern Washington, and people who are participating in their civic government, still not seeing the whole let's take it over thing so much as let's use our influence wisely wherever we happen to be. Rawls' website expands on the preparedness required for a second civil war he predicts between the right and the left. His book is a novel, and in some ways it's a how-to book of how to become truly prepared. 
Now, it is set against a, a, a kind of civil war, but more against an economic collapse that basically uh, creates a great reset, for lack of a better term. And, and the people who saw the potential for that kind of thing coming and who prepared ahead of time and found a place to ride out the mayhem that, that swept across the country. And it's it's a pretty chilling book in some ways, but there's a lot of good, useful information. There's no way that it's it's uh, portrayed as, and by the way, white people, rise up and do this. Because his, his cast of characters, the people in the book, are definitely not one skin color, nor are they all marching to the same tune. They're people who take seriously the idea of remaining free in a world where, where freedom is becoming a vanishing thing or where they have to fend for themselves. Now, this is not a tale Idahoans have trouble understanding, given Meridian's recent experience of a California transplant who attempted to abolish the library district. California plates are as plentiful in Boise these days as Idaho potatoes, although all Californians moving to Idaho certainly do not fit the mold of a white Christian nationalist sidle up to a uh, sidle up in a bar in Boise in next to a displaced California. And then you're likely to hear a lecture on how expensive it is to live in California and how much his home's equity was worth in the Idaho housing market. But it's also possible that you will get a riff on the liberal state and the conservative ecstasy of living in a state where the right wing is in its ascendancy. That's just a, that's a fancy progressive way of saying you'll hear someone actually appreciating the freedom that they were rapidly losing or had completely lost wherever they came from. There's nothing wrong with somebody appreciating that, but, oh, it's the right wing and it's an ascendancy because only the right wing, you know, would dare care about something like freedom. Onishi counts at least 50 people from his home community of Yorba Linda, who he knows have moved to Idaho, which he claims has gone from flyover country to the hottest region west of the Mississippi. No argument there. Some Idahoans, when first hearing of California's wagon train in reverse heading to the gem state, may rejoice to think of the newbies serving as the moderating influence on Idaho's increasingly conservative politics. Again, it's just that concern for conservative politics. What about the left-wingers? Come on. It's not the conservatives who are trying to, you know, teach our kids how to use sex toys and, and the, the, you know, intricacies of oral sex. That's uh, somebody else with an agenda. Somehow we never seem to hear about that. But uh, please, Bob, carry on. Onishi dashes these expectations by citing Boise State research showing the new Californians more conservative than native Idahoans. Oh, boy. Onishi portrays many of our new residents as seeking a self-segregated white Christian society. Now, that's him portraying it, a self-segregated society without the bother of religious, racial, or ethnic minorities. I'd like to see some proof of that. I, I would love to see the proof because, frankly, the, the people I see here in Idaho, at least where I live in southern Idaho, seem to come in from, from a number of different backgrounds and represent a lot of different religious, racial, or ethnic minorities. And the, Again, the one thing that I see that they have in common is there is an appreciation for freedom among most of them. The exception would be those who, uh, for whatever reason, feel like, you know, it's their job to come in here and show these rubes how it's done in the real world. But thankfully, those people are few and far between. Bob says, I'm sure Boiseans could quibble with Onishi on some of his generalizations applying to their city, but it's very difficult to question his premise when you leave Boise for the rest of Idaho. Yes, because Boise gets it, but the rest of Idaho, well... What's it like among all those Trump supporters? Onishi sets, uh, or cites rather various iterations of the American readout, naming and quoting religious political leaders setting up their own Christian fortresses in Moscow and Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and Spokane, Washington. By the way, he uses a 20-year-old photo of Richard uh, ba Richard Butler rather from the uh, Aryan Nations as proof of this is what they're coming here for. Dude, that guy's been gone for a long time. I don't know why you think that uh, that's the reason people are coming, but... 
No matter where you travel in the United States today, there is a recognition of Boise as a city on the move and a state growing by leaps and bounds. What's less obvious is this parade of people who moved to Idaho to separate themselves from the United States of America, not just California. Well, if you're talking about people who are looking to to at least get out from under that federal thumb, eh, perhaps. They are hoping they can remove themselves from a nation growing increasingly diverse, as well as increasingly totalitarian, by finding refuge in Idaho and other intermountain states. It's not the diversity, Bob. It's, it's the fact that government is still not all powerful here, nor is there that sheep-like mindset of we must obey whatever we are told that, that seems to hold sway in some of the more metropolitan areas. A manifestation of the Redoubt's effort at the state level to assume control of Idaho's local governments is the ongoing attack Republican legislators wage on what they call woke ideology. Look at the scare quotes. Woke. It doesn't even exist. It's not real. But it's really nothing but an assault on a compendium of current statutes that trust local governments to act on behalf of their citizens. That's not true. The response that you're seeing to these woke policies It's not because right-wingers are trying to take control. It's because they see the left-wing pushing and pushing more things into the lives of of them and their children, and they're putting their foot down and drawing boundaries and saying, enough, this is not the proper role of government. But I I don't expect Kustra to, to see this. They also target the word diversity in their efforts to expunge any reference to schools preparing students for a workplace and society quite different from the all-white existence these extremists attempt to to build in Idaho. There he goes. The mask is slipping off here. It's not just people who want to come here to be free. They're extremists. They're trying to escape diversity. Actually, what they're trying to escape is the uniformity of thought that people like Bob Kustra are trying to promote. And they continue to take aim at their favorite target, the teaching of racism in America's history of slaveholding. I believe you meant to say uh, critical consciousness. It's part of critical race theory. It's part of that uh, that, uh, theory that everyone is a victim as long as they're not part of uh, the, the people who believe in freedom and religion and limited government and so forth. And therefore, you know, the victim classes have this moral superiority and everybody else should do what they say and feel bad because uh, victims have no control over their circumstances. And if you have uh, privilege in your life, well, you need to be made to pay. Sorry. He goes off more on the lines of they, they package this in neatly bound critiques of gibberish that ignores our slaveholding past. Nobody's ignoring it, Bob. We just recognize that was a problem that was solved by other people in another time. And it's not a problem that exists today. Oh, but the racism is still deeply embedded in our society. Only in the minds of people like Bob Kustra and others who find racism to be a useful tool to try to separate people from their freedom. All right. One final thought here. If you travel out Military Reserve Road, you can visit the Fort Boise Military Cemetery of Civil War graves and veterans' graves and headstones. On its website, you can read about reports of the cemetery haunted by spirits that roam the area. Apparently, those spirits have found their way to the state's capital, where the American Redoubt's Second Civil War pits those clear-eyed and proud about the diversity of America against Idaho Republicans who bow in reverence to those who seek a white redoubt. It's, it's, see, it's just racist who want to come here and not people who actually value their freedom and would rather be left alone by busybodies, mental or otherwise, like, uh, like Bob Kustra. Which shall it be for Idaho's future, he asks. Well, he says the answer is ours to complete. What, uh, what an absolute shock. <laughs> Bob Kustra is, is just convinced. If you came to Idaho... 
and you're not towing the left-wing line, well, then the only possible reason you could be here is to uh, to feed your racism and to escape diversity and and basically to to uh, to try to get away from people like him who know what's best and want to tell you what's best. It's uh, it's really one of the more pathetic things that uh, that I've read in a while, but it was good enough to share. Just if nothing else to understand, this is the kind of contempt that uh, that Idaho's legacy media and many of its reporters bring to the table. And I, I don't know that uh, they're necessarily setting out to be evil so much as it's just progressivism and and it's it's you know a traveling companion of of left wing thought is presumed to be, you know, the way things are supposed to be. So they're just, they're doing what they can to uphold that progressive mindset and trying to convince you that this is the way it really is, no matter how hard they have to gaslight you. By the way, if you get the time, I would recommend also jump onto the uh, lmtribune.com and check out their editorial about there's nothing sinister about this year's legislature's victim, this legislature's victims. Oh my word, they go through a litany of all the people who were victims, women, pregnant women, Doctors, transgender students, uh, let's see, what else? LGBT students. I mean, they just go on and on and on. It's all about how sinister these people are, are seen by the, the legislature and how the legislature itself is so sinister for, for any of the bills that it was was looking to pass, including the one regard, was it H, HB71 that would restrict doing surgical mutilation of minors who have gender identity confusion or giving them uh, puberty blockers. Oh my, that's, that's just proof that it's, it's, you know, there, there's just, they, they see the, the victims as sinister and he keeps using that word over and over again. Oh, there's, it's so sinister, but it's all couched in the idea that it's the oppressed versus the oppressors. It's, it's like this, this giant game of class warfare, which, which made me, well, where have I heard that before? It sounded so familiar. Oh, that's right. Karl Marx, the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. And I guess the lesson we can draw from this is uh, you have people who are actively promoting those class struggles. Now, whether they're promoting out-and-out Marxism is probably beside the point. They are definitely promoting the idea that everything must change. Everything that came before must be torn down and replaced with whatever their version of a utopian society is, which jives pretty well with that whole left-wing vibe. So if you've been feeling like, well, I must be the odd person out because I came here for freedom. Well, first of all, to them, you are an extremist. Freedom is viewed as a selfish, dangerous kind of thing. And anybody who would stand up for it or or protest when someone starts to uh, abridge or step on their freedom is obviously someone very dangerous that we need to rein in. But please, don't take it personal. They, they don't have facts. They do not have reality on their side. And so that's why they have to spin things out of control in order to, to get people to go along with it. I think the bigger lesson here is you can you cannot get away with just simply reading news headlines. If you want to really know what the story is on on a given issue, that's something you got to be willing to dig into, study, and suss out for yourself. That's kind of what I've been saying all along, isn't it? You don't have to take somebody's word on it. You don't have to take my word for it. Don't trust what your legacy media is telling you. They're very happy to spin stories. They're very happy to, to troll for stories. They're very happy to find whatever they can to support their point of view. But it's not a point of view that's conducive with freedom freedom of conscience, free markets, or liberty. There's a lesson in there. Let's let's pay close attention to it. I'm Brian Hyde, and this is Nowhere to Hide.
Reporters are biased, the Idaho Press Club are biased, all media, newspaper, radio. To be completely blunt here, Brian, and there are plans to expand indoctrination. That's right. Well, Idahoans are also concerned. Horror shot. That line would be moving a little bit farther west. I'm like crying. Nobody wants to Dark see. Dark money is influencing policy in our state. Well, that's not how this works.